I'm Chuck Quinley from the Thread Bible Podcast. Today's question, did Eve have children with anyone besides Adam? Find out in this episode of the Thread Bible Podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life through verse-by-verse study of the Bible. In Season 4, we're exploring the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1-12. through Season 4 of the Thread Bible Podcast is brought to you by MediaLiteOnline.com. And right now, MediaLite is offering its most popular online course for free. Learn to use the power of social media to speak truth to your generation. It's available now at MediaLiteOnline.com. And I also want to remind you uh, to like the MediaLite Network page on Facebook where you'll find our weekly video podcast. In each episode of that podcast, you'll get encouraging training, an interview with an innovator in mission and question and response time with yours truly. And you can also find the show on the MediaLite Network channel on YouTube and as an audio podcast on Spotify and other podcast platforms. As an added bonus today, I'll be coming to you from Anchovy, Jamaica, which is a hilltop community overlooking Montego Bay, and we will also have the sounds of neighborhood children playing and goats bleeding and all the beautiful sounds of community life all around us, and I'm just going to let it roll and not worry about it because it's beautiful noise. Okay, today we are in Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 through 24, and we're studying the family line of Cain. Last week, we, we heard the Creator God uh, as He was engaging Cain, the firstborn human, born of a woman, not created directly by God, And he was talking to Cain about a new concept called intention. That it's not just what you do, but it's what you intend to do. And that this this intention thing is an inner power that is actually very strong. And God told him, you have the authority to rule over the beast of sin, but if you don't rule it with all, it's going to take your energy, but if you don't rule sin, then your intention will become an evil intention, and it will draw your actions into darkness, and um, Cain becomes the first murderer, the first to hate. Uh, He just follows, and the beast of sin devours him. Now, after Cain fails and he begins his own family and a line of descendants come from him, this becomes something of real interest in the scriptures. And there's actually a theology that emerges at this point, and we can call it two seeds theology. And the root of this this line of theology actually started in chapter 3, at the tree, and after Eve failed, Adam failed, and God was dealing with the serpent, he made a a little speech, and in this declaration, 
uh, it's the first example of the gospel. And in this, in this first hint that there will be a, um, a salvation plan for the earth, God talks about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and that they will be mortal enemies and that the, the serpent will uh, bite the heel of Eve's descendants trying to hurt them and poison and kill them. And then Eve's descendant will crush the head of the serpent. And later this is developed in Scripture and the idea of a Messiah coming and of a perfect human who will rise up and will use free will and will turn the power of free will and intend to do the will of God. And use that to crush the head of the serpent. But this whole notion that there will be two families, two lines, two seed throughout human history locked in a battle. So that's the, the origin thought. And now it drops down here into chapter 4. We've already had the big drama with Cain as he completely yields his heart and his mind to the darkness. And he allows his intention to become the intention to do Ra, the intention to be a destroyer, to be someone who breaks down, and that growing into hatred, and hatred growing into murder. And so uh, Cain becomes the representative of the seed of Satan in Scripture, and he becomes the first member in the family of the devil. Now, this seems very clearly to be a spiritual metaphor, and we'll, we'll develop that as we go through today. But two kinds of humans, two hearts, two spiritual fathers that operate upon the earth and in the lives of humans, but cult groups throughout history, all the way back to the Gnostic group in the early New Testament era and the era after it uh, for the next couple of hundred years, they were very interested in this, and they want it to be a literal, um, a literal seed, as in there are literal humans who are genetically, physically related to Satan. They are the, the literal spawn of Satan. You could say, well, how could that be? Well, they, they do a retelling of the story in chapter 3, and it becomes the, um, you can put quotes around this one, uh, the rape of Eve. So here is Eve. She is life giver. She is the only uh, person on the planet with the ability to produce life for the planet, and that uh, in the mind of these cult groups, the serpent's language that all this is euphemism, that what he is doing is sweet-talking her for sex with him, and that the Nakash uh, had a nearly human form, and that when the Nakash was successful at having bred uh, God's life-giver, and she is going to bear this uh, hybrid, 
half-breed fruit that crosses the line because when God is building his his animal kingdom and then the, the human kingdom and the plant kingdom, he keeps using the same expression. They must multiply after their kind. He, they must multiply after their kind. So in the retelling of this story by the cult groups, they'll say, okay, so God got really mad at him for doing that. He had crossed the line and he had multiplied outside of his kind. And so God stripped him, stripped his body of penis and legs, and now he must crawl on his chest and the stump of a body. Um, and now there's his human line of half-breeds. Well, a bunch of problems with this. One is the text, which I'll go back to in a minute. But the other problem is this is really uh, convenient for any kind of hate group who wants to, for example, the Nazis, they use this retelling of the story or something like it uh, to be able to say, ah, and the Jews are the spawn of Satan. Well, you know, as in they are literal descendants and they must be exterminated. Well, this is rubbish, of course. As the text itself says so clearly in chapter 4, verse 1, Cain was entirely the biological offspring of Adam. And in chapter 12, clearly says that uh, Adam's descendants and the Jewish people, the family of Abraham, are God's chosen vessels. You know, not the devil's work on earth, but they are God's chosen vessel to bring salvation to the world. And that they will bring the promised snake crusher king. And that Jews will bring light and truth and blessing to all the nations, and they will bring us the truth about the Creator God, and all of us are indebted to Jewish people for preserving this holy book that reveals our purpose as humans and and set us on the path, and through, through them came Christ, the Savior of the whole world. Um, so there's, there's nothing in the text that leans this way. They just butcher the text, but it's, it's a very convenient way to do the ultimate hate um, storytelling to a group that you don't like is you can just feed them back in and make them the descendants. Uh, so then they want to make Cain that descendant and then his, his children after him. Well, that's obviously not true according to the scriptures and the plain reading of the Bible says no such thing. What Cain does, however, represent is the spiritual family of Satan, this family that loyally follows darkness. Cain is the first of many humans who open their heart and devote themselves to evil as their life's purpose. And the New Testament picks this up and talks about it uh, uh, under the, um, the phrase the line of Cain, and if you got a Bible, hope you always have one when we're having this podcast, but if you go over to Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Jude talks about uh, false prophets, and he goes to great lengths to describe them, and as he's describing them, he is describing Cain. And when he gets to the end of it, in verse 11, he calls it 
they have followed the way of Cain. And then you go to 1 John, and 1 John does an extensive um, an extensive write-up. If you want to find some kind of salvation plan in Scripture where, okay, this is how salvation works. Uh, the plan is knowing God through Jesus, and that's it. Well, do I pray a certain prayer, uh, the sinner's prayer, or any other prayer? No, Jesus never led anyone in any prayer, and no apostle ever did either, even Paul. We don't see a record of him ever having a formula or four steps, and if you do this, you're now saved, and you say these words, you're now saved. None of them use this as the gospel in the New Testament. What they do understand is salvation is that you know the bridegroom. Salvation is you know the king. Salvation is you know the creator God, but you can't know him on your own, so he has come, sent his son Jesus, who has come to reveal him to you and to open the door so you can come back to the garden. You can come back ultimately to the tree of life and you can live forever with the Father. And that's the whole New Testament story is the recovery of this planet, taking it away from dark forces and humans taking back their planet led by Jesus. And that Jesus is starting a movement. He was the perfect God-man. He crushed the head of the serpent. He established the rulership of God over the planet. And that rule will grow as more humans from coast to coast open their heart, accept God's chosen king, Jesus, and begin to live and reign in this world as God intended us to and do war against the dark forces, uh, spiritual war. So First uh, John is this beautiful book. Um, and he, he loves, a, a lot of Christians read First John every single day because it's just such a powerful and clear representation of the truth of the gospel. Well, I'm just going to read a few passages here because it's relevant to the idea that there are two lines of humans in the world. One is the line of Cain, and, the other, and through Cain it is the line of the devil, and on the other hand, it is the line of the woman's seed, uh, anointed by God and chosen. We'll be right back. So here we are, 1 John 1, let's read 6 through 9. I'll, I'll go back to verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and we declare it to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's talk about this spiritual state. Let's go to chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 9 and 10. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now in chapter 3, he's going to call this, again, uh, he's going to connect this to Cain. Chapter 3, verse 10, 10 through 12. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. That means uh, revealed, like you pulled a curtain back and you can now see, or you turn on the lights in the dark room, and now you can clearly see the truth. So in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So this idea, uh, very clear in the New Testament, an acceptance of the idea that there are two lines of humans on the earth. And Jesus accepted this concept that there was an ongoing spiritual war throughout human history with all the human children of Satan ever persecuting the innocent children of God. And in uh, John chapter 8, Jesus blends the personality of Satan and the personality of Cain. He says in chapter 8, verse 44, he's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. So these people who thought themselves so spiritual, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks his native language. So, you know, it's clearly the two lines and the line of Cain. It's clearly not a racial distinction because in this passage, here is a Jew standing, speaking to other Jews, and he is characterizing them as being children of the devil and saying that others within Israel are children of God. So it's a spiritual concept. Paul accepted this concept. If you read Acts chapter 13, um, Paul is in public in Cyprus. He is preaching, and he is trying to evangelize the Roman proconsul. And sitting beside him is a fellow Jew who was also a practicing sorcerer. His name was Elamus. And he sits beside this proconsul, and he's whispering against Paul. The whole time Paul is trying to deliver the gospel to this man, Elamus is saying things against it. 
And finally, Paul turns and says to Elamus in um, Acts 13, 10, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you shall be blind for a time. And he was struck with temporary blindness, and the proconsul turned to Christ. So this idea, clearly from Genesis chapter 3 all the way into the New Testament, all the way into the book of Revelation, uh, being uh, there identified as having a mark that your head has a seal. It either has the seal that you are a child of God or you have a seal that you are of the beast. And you know we saw that in Cain's story. It is the beast that God told him, avoid the beast. The beast is powerful, but you are strong enough to resist. Now, um, in the Old Testament, they had a phrase for this person who follows the beast, and it was, you're a son of Belial. Uh, it's like a son of a demon, son of a, a demon god. And in, uh, if you want to look it up in one reference, you can go to Judges chapter 9, verse 4, and this is a horrible story of Abimelech, who has 70 brothers, and he plots against his brothers. And Judges 9, 4 says, and they hired sons of Belial, and they went with him to his father's house, and they murdered all his brothers, the 70 of them, on one stone. You know, it's a horrible story about things done by horrible people. And I have met some people in my life that were just absolutely, uh, they just, I have met people who were murderers, who, who were actually law enforcement in a developing country, and they had killed so many people and had no no conscience about it at all. And when you are near them and you look in their face, I mean, it's like the eyes of a shark. And I don't know, maybe there's three, maybe there's three groups. I mean, this isn't theology, but maybe there's three groups. Maybe there are the children of God and the children of the devil, and both of them have made a firm commitment to their fathers, and they are following with all their heart. They are sold out serious about their father's business. And then there are the multitudes of the undecided, who they are not following God. They are led into temptation and sin and all sorts of things, but they, they don't really give themselves completely to it. You know what I mean? You just Well, maybe that's all of us. Um, Hopefully, you find Christ, you step out of that. But there are some people that are just dedicated to, to evil. It, actually, Elijah says, get out of that third group of can't make up your mind. And when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel, he said these words, make up your mind. If Yahweh is God, serve him. But if Baal, the dark prince, is God, then serve him. I mean, make up your mind. Get in a family. Uh, you know, that middle group is the, their mission field. And we live to reach into their lives and to try to help them see the truth of Christ and the darkness and what the darkness will do. 
All right, let's go back to Cain's life. So Cain is in Scripture the first to give himself over to sin and to nurse hatred and hatred for his own brother and to persecute his brother to the extent of using fake love. I mean, this is the first generation of naturally born humans. And he, you know, there's things in his conversation with God that are so devious and and slippery. You know, am I my brother's keeper? And in this case, with his own brother, he uses love as bait. Come, brother, let's go for a walk together. It's deceit used to lure his innocent little brother into a vulnerable place so he can be murdered. And what was his crime? Because he had chosen to worship God with all his heart. It was the goodness of his life that was repulsive to Cain. You know, evil is repulsed by purity. Uh, and Cain could not take it. And when you look into Cain's speeches after God catches him, he doesn't really seem to repent. And God sentences him to be a wanderer, that he will be wandering the earth, walking on the earth, but he won't be able to make use of the earth because the earth won't cooperate with him anymore, and that he is not to join a human community. And yet, God promises he will walk with him as Cain has to walk out his sentence in the earth, God is still going to be walking with him, reaching out to him, protecting him. But what does Cain choose? He chooses something totally different. The first thing we learn in chapter 4, go back to our text, verse 16, it says, Cain left the presence of the Lord. He turns his back on God. He walks away from God who didn't tell him that he couldn't have interaction with him. God actually promised to be with him and let his sign be his protection. But Cain leaves the presence of God. Does he become a wanderer? No, he refuses. The next verse says he settles into a new land. And I guess he's the one that gave it the name. The, the name of the land, uh, the property that he, he gets is called wandering. Well, that's not the point. He's supposed to be a wanderer. He's supposed to be a pilgrim on the earth, and instead he, he settles. He gets him into a new piece of land. He calls it the land wandering, and he begins to build right away. Verse 17, he begins to build his own legacy, and as he starts to build his legacy, he has uh, a notion and he follows this idea. Remember, God told him he's not to be part of a human community, and he's to be a wanderer. And this is what verse uh, 17 says. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son. And this turns another uh, big page in theology in the Bible. And we begin an entirely different conversation now. And it's a conversation about two cities. Because in Genesis 1 through 3, we read about the biosphere that Yahweh created and the model of botanical perfection that he himself created when he made the royal garden in Eden. And we meet the humans that he created to oversee 
the world and take care of this, uh, this botanical, perfect garden. But we never get to see stage two. There, there was apparently a stage two because the story gets interrupted with Adam and Eve, and we don't get to stage two. But, um, you know, if we are right now in the world that God would make, in the cold, dark death of space, you know, what would it be, got, be like if God made a planet? Well, we're here looking at it. This is what it would be like. Well, what would it be like if God built a city? What if God built not, a, not an organic thing? What if he built an inorganic thing? What if he made his own model city? What if he made a perfect city uh, as like the model home? And we could copy aspects of the city all over the planet. Well, apparently Yahweh revealed this plan because the New Testament tells us in the book of Hebrews that Abraham spent his entire life of wandering in search of this city. He was looking for the city whose builder and maker is Yahweh. And when you get to the last book of the Bible, it ends with the story of this planet with God conquering the darkness And humans are once again back in charge. Jesus, the perfect human, is installed at God's right hand. The earth is created again, renewed. It is back to its beautiful state. And then the perfect city, fully constructed, emerges out of the heavenly realm, not out of the sky. It comes through the dimension. It comes through the heavenly realm into the material world like a like a spaceship, but it has dimensions. It's 1,500 miles wide, and it settles gently onto the soil of earth. It's God's house. It's the royal city. It's the real temple of God. It's the capital of this planet. It is the new Jerusalem, God's city. We're on God's planet, and one day we will see God's city. And, you know, throughout the scripture, Satan is attacking all of God's plans. He's doing it with counterfeit. And it starts right now in scripture. You know, Cain is a pretty important person. We don't think of him much, but the New Testament authors did. Uh, This counterfeiting of God's great city starts with Cain's city. Stay tuned. If you ever get a chance, you need to go to Cambodia and go to Angkor Wat. And Angkor Wat is as big as Manhattan, and it is one of those disappearing civilizations that did, like the Incas, you know, and the Mayas. And they just build these amazing, I mean, this is more than the pyramids of Egypt. This is, this goes on as big as Manhattan, and it's temple and uh, palace after palace. They're just, I don't know who these people were, but... It, you know, it took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to build it. And you can always tell the old ones, the older sections, because they're smaller. You know, it starts with uh, 
Uh, the father was a king. He has a great idea, a huge idea, and he builds the biggest house he can imagine and the biggest city he can imagine. And his son grows up in that, and that's the normal. And so when his son has a dream, ah, he, the biggest one he can imagine is about double his dad's, you know, at least. So he makes it even bigger, everything. And then his son goes double that. And so you end up with these huge ones, but you know those are the last ones built because of that. Well, this is kind of what's happening. The anti-God city starts with Cain. God told him to wander. And Cain said, nope, I am taking new land. I'm going to make my own thing and I'm going to make the city. And so he begins, what's in a city? Well, in a city you can hide. And in a city you have all your comforts. And in a city, it's funny, you think you're secure, but you're actually in a lot more danger in any city than you are out in the country. You're more danger from accidents, more danger from someone taking your life. You're cut off from all food sources. You have to bring food to a city. But, um, you know, you feel like, yeah, you're on top of the world when you live in the city, but the city also has luxuries and indulgences, and you can find prostitution in the city. You can find gambling. You can find drugs. You can find all everything that you would ever want in the darkness. You will always be able to find that in a city. And so Cain begins the concept of a city. And then we get this um, this list of his descendants. It goes down through the rest of chapter 4, and it names his descendants, and, and it, it, it gives them an honest appraisal, and it says they were technological innovators. They were forward-thinking. They were uh, technology of animal husbandry, so you can you know, greatly expand your livestock. That was wealth in those days. And then others are the, are the inventors of metalwork, and then verse 21, you have uh, the ones who made the arts flourish, and they are, it's the beginning of music, and you have all this amazing stuff. And on the one hand, they're amazing, but on the other hand, they are dark, violent people. And you end up with this story that gets zoomed up on because they don't want you to miss the point, yes, uh, he achieved some great human things in his quest to be a little God. And his descendants are, they're great in a way, but they're dark. And they follow the darkness and they follow, they are the seed of the serpent. And then one of them is named Lamech. And Lamech is, you know, is directly in the line of Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. And he's made this song or a poem. I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain be avenged sevenfold, Lamech, seventy-sevenfold. Um, other other uh, translations of this song of his says, I have killed a child for, like, hitting me. It's not even, you know, how seriously can a little kid hit you? But it's like, this is such a, a bore of a man. And he just goes and he comes home bragging that he has murdered 
He has killed a man for wounding him, and he has killed an adolescent or a child for bumping into him, for, for anything that like, inconvenienced him. He has struck them down and killed them. And it's this kind of, and then, and he's got this boastful arrogance, uh, even toward God, uh, presuming that uh, God has to back him up as well, that, you know, that he is a great man of vengeance and God will have to support him. Uh, verse 24. So that's, that's like getting us on the track of what the world is like if it's led by Cain and Cain's descendants. And we're going to keep on this path and we're going to see the descendants of Cain uh, and the line, not so much the descendants of Cain, the, the line of Satan is going to continue on this concept and they're going to build Babylon as their ultimate conquest and, and they're, uh, the thing they're the most proud is the perfect city prototype for the headquarters of evil on the earth. Unrepentant, self-willed, self-promoting, hating authority, abusive lovers of money, sex, and power, God-haters, persecutors of worship. The New Testament says, talking about this line of the devil, their God is their belly. And they bow only to little gods that they've created. So the history of earth we're going to watch is a struggle between two cities, the city of God, the New Jerusalem, and in its spiritual form, the new Jerusalem that's already here in the existing kingdom of God and spiritual Babylon, which is also existing in many dark places around the world. And the history of this planet is a struggle between these two cities and between the, the two human communities that live in these cities because each of, each of these cities, the population is very loyal to its king. And so you end up with this battle going back and forth. I want to close with a, a little clip from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Rock. Just a few lines. The world turns and the world changes, but one thing does not change. In all my years, one thing does not change. And however you disguise it, this thing does not change the perpetual struggle of good and evil. Fight the good fight, my friend, and expect God to use you. Don't miss us this week, Media Light Network on Facebook on Tuesday. Uh, we have replays throughout the day. Uh, we want to know you. We want to build you up, see you strong. We want you in the city of God. And we want you to join as we welcome home the King one day. So build yourself up. Put on your weapons of war because we have spiritual battles to fight. There are people to rescue. We are here to seek and save the lost. God wants to use you and he will do it today because you are the light of the world.